Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Appreciate that prayer, and I'll be sure and tell Tricia you said hi. She is one of our valued employees, and um, so I took a picture to confirm we ran into each other, and I look forward to sharing it with her. It is so good to be with you tonight, and I hope that you will be blessed by our time together. I have already been blessed by being here. If we look in Leviticus chapter 25, I want you to notice what it says. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. And you shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through the land. They're then told to consecrate themselves. This will be a time of jubilee, a time of freedom, the releasing of captives. It will be a time of rejoicing and praise for God. On August 5th, 2010, a piece of diorite over 45 stories tall, weighing over seven 170,000 tons, twice the weight of the Empire State Building, broke free at a mine in Chile or Chile. Cutting down through the mine, cutting through entrance and exit routes, cutting off outside communication, and leaving some 33 miners trapped in the deep recesses of that mine. Thinking that they would be rescued shortly, they made themselves to a still fortified, just a really it's a small classroom that they called the refuge. And that's where they were to go in the event of a collapse in the mine. So they went to that room. There was there enough food to feed 25 people for two days. It was not long until they realized that they had no contact with the outside world, that they had no way of confirming that they were alive, no way to get out, no way to communicate. There were numerous attempts to try to get to them. Each time they tried, they were blocked by this massive piece of dialogue. While they're deep down in the mine figuring out how they're going to survive, they're rationing out the food, rationing out the few bottles of water that they have. People on the top side and literally people around the world are trying to figure out how to save them. Family members began to gather and pitch tents. You had workers, you had mining crews from literally all over the world. Even NASA got involved in the project of trying to save these men. The place where the people would gather on the upper ground was known as Esperanza, Camp Hope. 
at this particular camp, eventually the president, uh, the then president of Chile, erected this cross. Because as the days passed, they were unable to make contact. They were able to confirm that they were alive. They didn't have a way to get them out, didn't know how long it was going to take. People began to lose hope. And so he basically set up this cross as a memorial in case they never found them. And that mine became a tomb. In time, that cross memorial had a change in meaning. As we think about our time together tonight, we've been asked to talk about hope. And I would like us to think about sounding the trumpet of hope. I think a key place where we might look to talk about hope is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The book of 1 Thessalonians, it seems to me, there are other things you might add to the list and you can follow up. I I don't know about you, when I go hear someone speak, I, I listen and learn from what the person shares, but usually I get lots of ideas of things I want to go study further. And so I'm often, Brother Collie, I don't know if you're like that, I'm often making myself notes, I want to look at this or dig deeper into that. So maybe some of these things will whet your appetite and you can dig further. But it seems to me among the things that we might point out that the book of 1 Thessalonians is focusing on, it seems to be encouraging a congregation of new Christians who are quickly facing some persecution. He is trying to explain to them the nature of the second coming. He apparently had talked about it when he was with them. There were some misunderstandings, and he's trying to clear that up. And he's trying to exhort them to live godly lives in a culture where they are surrounded by paganism, immorality, and idol worship. The theme phrase I like to use for this book is, Serve Him now, see Him later. He's trying to challenge them to live lives that serve God with the hope that later we'll live in His presence. I like to use from chapter 1, the theme verse that we're going to focus on tonight, that talks about what they turned from and what they turned to. That they turned from idols to God to serve and to wait. And we'll come back to those items in just a few moments. Really, the first half of the book of 1 Thessalonians focuses on the interaction between Paul and the church, what he knows about them, what he knows about their faith. does a lot of that in chapter 1, which we're going to look at. Chapter 2 talks a lot about how he tried to conduct himself and how the team tried to conduct themselves when they were with them. And then the second half of the book is going to be instructions for what now they are to do as they seek to live out their faith. So the biblical bullseye I would like us to focus on as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is, do they hear our hope? So let's dive into the text and and talk as we move forward. First of all, it says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. I would love, if he had it written down somewhere, to see the list of all the people Paul was praying for. 
Have you ever noticed, if you read through his letters, how often he talks about he's praying for someone? And I truly believe one of the greatest gifts you can give someone is to say, I'm praying for you. And I want you to think about how many times we say to somebody, hey, I'll pray for you. And I wonder how many times we say, I'll pray for you. And then we forget to go pray for them. Paul had a regular, consistent, committed prayer life. And so he talks about praying for them, but as he prayers, prays for them and mentions them before the creator of the universe, he remembers the kind of faith that he saw lived out by them. Work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. One of the things that I do, especially with the writings of Paul, when I'm looking at one of his letters, I like to code the book. I got it years ago from somebody else, where you go through a book in the Bible, and you look for all the words or phrases, and you can also include synonyms in this, where you have words that are different words but have the same meaning. And I look for all the ones that are found at least three times. I don't use words like the, of, and, unless they're a part of a phrase that's repeated over and over and over. And what will happen is, is if you'll go through your Bible, and you'll notice every time in a letter by Paul, a phrase is found as at least three times, if you will mark each of those phrases differently, then go back and look at the book, and Paul's themes will just leap off the page. You'll see words and phrases that run all the way through the book. You'll see words and phrases that crop up in one chapter, disappear for a couple of chapters, and come back at the end. In other words, we repeat words and phrases that are important to us. When Paul writes letters, he repeats things over and over that are important to him, in that letter. There are certain words Paul frequently uses. Words like peace and grace. Every letter. But also faith, love, and hope. Frequently in Paul's letters and elsewhere in the New Testament, you will find two or three of those words together. It kind of looks like to me that for Paul, faith, love, and hope summarize the Christian experience and the Christian life. Think in terms of faith is what brings us into a relationship with Christ. Love is how people live who are in a relationship with Christ. And hope is what keeps us going when we face struggles in Christ. So let's talk a little bit about what he says here about faith and love and hope. He starts out by talking about their work of faith. Now, when you're reading the Colossian letter, you're reading what he's saying about a church he heard about. He tells us in chapter 2, he's never been to this congregation. That's not true of Thessalonica. He's been there. He's visited this church. He knows these people. He has seen their work of faith. I think about Ephesians chapter 2, when it talks about, By grace you are saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. But then notice what it says next. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. God's grace is what extends salvation to us. Our faith is what accepts that gift of salvation at the moment it expressed in our repentance, confession, and baptism. But it should always result in faith that is worked out, faith that is real, faith that is lived, faith that is active. And so he says, I know the works that grow out of your genuine faith. For Paul, there was no concept of faith as just a feeling in a heart. For Paul, faith was a deep conviction about God that led to how a person lived their lives, a life different from the life they knew before Jesus. So he said, I know the works that flow out of your faith. He then uses another word related to works as he talks about a labor of love. So he says, I know the work that flows out of your faith, but he says, I know the labor that flows out of your love. The word that is translated labor here is a word that describes working to the point of exhaustion. They did not just have a working faith. They did not just have an active faith. But they were all in laborers committed to God. It's interesting in chapter 2, he's going to use the same term to describe how he tried to conduct himself. Talks about laboring night and day for them. So he's saying, I see your faith flowing, your works flowing out of your faith. I see your strenuous labor that flows out of your deep abiding love, love for God and love for others. But then the phrase that is the key for us tonight is he said, I know of the steadfastness of your hope. So as you think about that idea of hope, the word is found 86 times in the New Testament and 56 times it's used by Paul in his various letters. As you can maybe see on the screen, it says the looking forward to something with reason for confidence respecting the fulfillment. When this word is used in Scripture, it's not talking about hope in terms of a wish. It's not talking about a dream. It's not something talking about something we would like to happen or love to happen or we want to happen. When this word in their language, which Paul uses over and over, is talking about confident expectation of something that is going to happen in the future. The idea is they are steadfast because they are confident that something is coming. They have a confident hope in something that lies yet in their future. All right, so... Let's just talk about this and try not to start an SEC fight. All right, so I'm an unusual person. So I lived in Huntsville as a boy. My dad was in the first graduate, he was in the first engineering class at Alabama Huntsville. Back in those early days, they didn't, they didn't have engineering professors. They just grabbed a bunch of NASA guys and said, go to that classroom and tell them how to do engineering. So that's how my dad was trained as an engineer. He started out, he ended up at UAH because he was in a co-op with Lockheed. So my dad worked at Lockheed, 
while he was going through school and then after he got out of school. My mom was a secretary with Brown Engineering. She likes to point out that she was actually the one that worked for NASA, that dad was just a contract company. And so we lived, we lived in Fedville and drove back and forth to Huntsville, but then pretty quickly we moved to Huntsville. I went to Madison Academy for the kindergarten and the first grade. So the first football team I ever saw on television in black and white was the Crimson Tide. All right, so that was my introduction to college football. But at the end of my first grade year, we moved to the Bluegrass State. And I grew up all the rest of elementary school, middle school, high school. Even when I got out of my first degree in college, I went back and worked as a, a youth minister in Elizabethtown. So I spent my growing up years in a state that lives and breathes basketball. So I'm one of those strange people that spent his whole life following Kentucky and Alabama. So when it comes to basketball, there are certain things that I think of, but I think of a game in 1998 when we're playing Duke, decide who's going to the Final Four, and with 10 minutes to go, actually under 10 minutes, Kentucky is down by 17 points. They won to the game and went on to win the national championship. I record games. I don't know if you do that. Even now, I'm on the road a lot, so I set my system on a Saturday. If there's an SEC game, I'm going to record it. And then I get up early in the morning before my girls get up. We've got a special needs daughter that lives at home, and Cindy. And so I'll early in the morning do things. I'll do my Bible reading, and I'll catch a little SEC football or basketball, whatever what happened the last week in early morning. So I've got this game recorded. The point is I'm making, I've been recording games a long time. I was a nervous wreck during that game. Because I thought, we cannot repeat 94. We can't lose to them again. Now, when I go back and watch that game, it's great. And it's fun to rewind. And right after they got that 17-point lead and they're scanning the stands, and people are mocking and people are laughing and people are pointing to the scoreboard, I'm thinking, wait nine minutes and 52 seconds. Because now, I know who wins. Now, when I'm talking to my Duke friends, they tell this story from 94, but we won't discuss that. But here's my point. A blessing that the Christian has is we know who wins. And that changes everything about living out the game. It's very different living the game when you don't know the outcome than living the game when you know who wins. So as we think about Paul, he emphasized in Scripture that the child of God lives with this confident expectation of a victory that's coming. We know how this thing ends. And so you can think about Romans chapter 15. It says, now may the God... What? The God of hope. The God who provides, if you will, confident expectation of good things in the future. May He allow us to have a life that abounds in hope. 
I think about 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10 where we fix our hope on the living God. And we'll come back to that idea of living in a few moments. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 says, We have the hope of eternal life. Why? Because the God who cannot lie promised it. And so we have this confident expectation because he said so. So there is power in that song, Jesus loves me, this I know, before the Bible tells me so. When God tells us something, if he says he loves us, if he tells us he has a reward for us, we can know because he is the God who cannot lie. So Paul says, I know that your steadfastness, remember backdrop, they are facing persecution very quickly as new Christians. And he says, you're steadfast. You're immovable. Think about Paul's words to the Corinthian brethren, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He says, you're steadfast because you have hope. You have confident expectation of the future. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 4 when Jesus stood up in his home synagogue, his home congregation. My understanding is there were typically around seven scripture readers on a given Sabbath. If there were some rabbis or priests in the area, they would read. Often it was men from the congregation. One of those men would be picked out by the leader of the synagogue to expound on his scripture reading. So Jesus is reading in his home synagogue on this particular Sabbath. He's handed apparently by the keeper of the scrolls, the scroll for Isaiah. He rolls it open to what would be Isaiah 61 in our Bibles. And I want you to notice what he says when he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. You hear what he's saying? What he's going to do in the aftermath of this is he's going to have his drop the mic moment. Remember, he's reading to his home congregation. And after reading this passage, which they, from what we read from ancient scholars, is, it's a passage that those first century Jews accepted came from, is a, a passage that's talking about their coming Messiah. He reads that passage sits down, because typically they would stand to read, sit down to teach. They're all looking at him, probably because he's the designated person to expound on his passage that day, or at least that's possible. And he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, Michael and Kim Chalmers are good friends of mine. I want you to imagine that, you know, Michael is welcoming everybody on a Sunday morning, and he says, we're so happy to have you here at West Huntsville. Just want you to know I'm the Son of God. Thank you for coming. Turning your psalm books to page 12. All right, that's kind of what happened. He read the scripture and said, that's me. But what was he here to do? He was here to give hope. Who is he talking to? The poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. And the favorable year of the Lord, many believe, is a reference back to the Jubilee year celebration that I read from Leviticus chapter 25. The implication meaning that as Jubilee is a year of freedom and release and celebration to praise to God, 
that ultimate jubilee happens in and through Jesus Christ. From the beginning, Jesus understood that he was here to give people hope. And what he's saying to the church at Thessalonica is, you stand on that hope. You, what did he say? Stand fast. Your steadfastness. You think of it as standing fast. And then he goes on to talk about knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. God had chosen that those who were in Christ Jesus would be his children. He talks about that in Ephesians chapter 1. And God acted first and calls us to have faith in him and faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's that sense in which we are chosen because God has chosen that those who are in Christ would be his. And because we have accepted that opportunity, we are his children. He says, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word also only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know that from what kind of, or what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I want you to hear what he says about the gospel. The word gospel means good news. So he says... Our good news, our message of good news, did not come to you in word only. So I want you to kind of look at what I've got after gospel there. And think of the connection to what he has above it. He says, first of all, the good news was spoken. But he then said it came with power. It was proven to be from God by miraculous deeds done by the apostles and Paul and others. It was inspired of God, he says, in the Holy Spirit. It was believed, he talks about, with full conviction. And it was lived out as an example in front of them, as Paul says, you know what kind of men we tried to be. So this is how they came to know the good news that gave them hope. And he says, then you became imitators, he says, having received the word with much tribulation. Their word was presented, the word was proven, the word was lived out. But he said, you received it. It wasn't enough for it to be proclaimed. They had to take it in. And he says, they took it in in the face of much tribulation. So you could go back to Acts chapter 17 and see the story of the persecutions that were faced by this congregation when they first began and how there was great difficulty. It was not easy for them to become a Christian. Sometimes I say that today we get to live a cushy Christianity. I think of one of our employees was traveling recently. I believe it was in Vietnam and they, their services were stopped. They were confined. They pulled their passports and held them because they had the audacity to talk about Jesus in an unregistered location. My guess is nobody's going to rush in the door and haul some of us off to prison. No one's going to be stoned in the parking lot. But for many people 2,000 years ago, becoming a Christian was a decision you had to think very seriously about. You could be cut off from your family. You could lose your job. You could be ostracized by your friends. You could lose your freedom. You could lose your life. 
Paul says, you did not just receive the Word. You received the Word in a world that was working against you, that was fighting to stop you. And he says, you not only received the Word, but you became imitators of us. Remember he just said, knowing what kind of men we tried to be in front of you. He says, we tried to set the right example to live out the good news in front of you. And he says, you imitated us, and because they became imitators of Paul and his co-workers, look at what they become in verse 7. So that you became an example. When we imitate Christ, others can imitate us. They imitated Paul, and think about in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ Jesus. That's exactly what this church did. They imitated Paul, and then others could imitate them across Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia is the region where Philippi and Thessalonica can be found. Achaia is ancient Greece where Athens and Corinth were found. He says, two provinces of the empire, they have heard of your faith. He says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. And that word that's translated sounding forth in our Bibles, it was a word that they used in the first century word world for the sounding of a trumpet. It was used for the sound of thunder and for the echo of a voice in a cave. They have heard your trumpets. They have heard the echo of your lives. It's reverberating across Macedonia and Achaia. They hear your faith. They hear your love. They hear your hope. I want you to think about the surrounded army who often the distance hears the sound of the bugler and the cavalry's arrival. The sound of that trumpet when you're surrounded by your enemies is the sound of hope. And he says, your steadfastness of hope Your refusal to give up on the gospel and on God is like a trumpet that is echoing across the Roman Empire. And it says, they themselves, how do I know? Because the people who heard the echo have told us that they know of your report and how you turned from idols. And I'll I'll be glad to share this with Brother Colley and he can go much deeper than can I. But sometime do some research into the pagan idols that were worshipped in and around Thessalonica. That you have the whole Greek pantheon of gods and different levels of spiritual beings. Whether it be the, the titans or the gods or what they called the heroes, mixture of God and human, etc. You had a number of different ones You also had these mystery religions, different religions from all across the ancient world. For example, from places like Egypt. You had a number of different gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And by the time you get to Paul's time, the Greek gods and the Roman gods had kind of all been mixed together. Many of them were connected to various trades. And so if you practice a certain trade, there was usually a god or a goddess attached to your trade guild. In the ancient world, it was different than today. 
If you were in the same trade, you weren't in competition with each other. You worked together to promote the trade for everybody. But part of how you promoted the trade was you all worshipped the same god or goddess that was attached to your trade guild. And so if you chose to worship God and follow Jesus instead of the god or goddess of your trade guild, you got kicked out of your trade guild, which meant that you were going to struggle to stay alive in the business world. So I want you to think about all that's going on around him. And they turned from that, risking everything. They turned from idols. You see, coming to God is not just about believing Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. It's not just turning to him and saying, I believe who you are. But it means turning from everything I had before that is not that. They turned from their idols to God to serve. Their allegiance was no longer with the gods, the false gods, the lowercase g gods. Their allegiance was the one true God who created the universe. But they did not just turn to Him in belief. They turned to Him to serve Him. It wasn't just a feeling in the heart or the mind. It it changed how they acted and how they lived. They lived life to serve Him, and they were willing to sacrifice for Him. And notice it says, why? Because He's a true and living God. He's not a fake, false, stone, wood, dead God. They left their dead gods to turn to and serve a living God. So they left something, but they turned to something, to someone, to God, to serve, and to wait. I want you to think about references to waiting and this idea behind this word in the New Testament. You have it found in Acts chapter 1 where it talks about the apostles waiting for the promise of the Father. Or Joseph of Arimathea who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Are the sick and handicapped at the pool of Bethesda who were waiting for the movement of the water. They were longing for something. They were yearning for something. They were wanting something. He says, you turn to God to serve, to wait, to yearn, to long. Anybody here have dogs? All right. You need a dog so that you're sure somebody's glad you came home every day. I don't care how bad your day's been. I don't care how many people I've offended at Heritage Christian. I get the same reaction from those two dogs every time I show up. Every once in a while a cat, but cats are weird. That's confident expectation. They want two things, a pat on the head and a full bowl of dog food. That's waiting eagerly. As you think about an animal that immediately when they hear the sound of the vehicle's tires at the end of the driveway starts jumping up and down and barking, he says, we live life yearning for a return. Except what we're wanting to see is the return of his son from heaven. That because we stand on hope, we get to live life with upturned eyes. 
living in confident expectation. And so we long for that moment. I, I like to say I long for the lift. I long for the moment when my feet levitate. And at that moment, I know that every problem I've ever had has just disappeared. And I'll never worry or hurt or be sad ever again. Do the people around us hear our hope? Do they know we've left our idols? Do they know and see and hear us living out our faith? Do they know that we love His appearing as a praise Paul uses in his last letter to Timothy? Are we living in hope? Are we living looking up? Seventeen days in, a drill finally got down far enough that it broke through. And when it broke through, they tied this note to the drill bit. Estamos bien en el refugio los treinta y tres. We are good in the refuge, the thirty-three. When the air broke through, when that drill bit came through, the 33 had hope. And when that note went back up, the masses on the service had hope. They didn't get out till day 69. But the hope factor between day 17 and day 69 was very different. In Jubilee, they said, sound the horn. It is a time of freedom and release and joy and hope. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, when Jesus comes back, you will hear what? The trumpet of God. And while we wait for that trumpet of realized hope, we are to live lives that are trumpets of faith, love, and the hope we stand on so that others who hear the echo of our hope can stand on hope as well. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and grace. Please be with us. Watch over us. Lift us up when we become discouraged. Father, thank you for believing in us and for the gift of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.